0: You are listening to the Evolution Exchange NHS podcast. We shine a light on the topics that matter to digital and data leaders in the NHS. I'm Alex Vodman, and I help connect digital leaders with interim talent in the NHS. And I'm your host. The views expressed by guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect the official position or policy of their organisation. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining this morning. And I thought it would be a really good way to start with some introductions. And Ben, you're actually the first on my screen to the left. So can I come to you first and possibly give us an introduction to who and where you work?
1: Yeah. Hi, uh, I'm Ben Bridgewater. I'm the Chief Executive Officer at Health Innovation Manchester. Health Innovation Manchester is our integrated academic health science and innovation system. So we exist to serve the people of Greater Manchester. uh, And our um, uh, approach is to discover, develop and deploy innovation at pace and scale towards the needs of local people. So we incorporate the uh, Greater Manchester Academic Health Science Network, uh, the Manchester Academic Health Science Centre, the Applied Research Collaborative, which is funded by NIHR, and the City Region Digital Transformation Office. Uh, and actually having all of those things working together in one organisation, we feel give benefits over those separate functions.
0: Um, uh, yeah, delighted to be here today. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Ben. Um, Felicity, I'm going to come to you next, if that's OK?
2: Yeah, that's fine. So I'm Felicity Cox. I'm the Chief Executive of Bedfordshire, Lewton and Milton Keynes Integrated Care Board. Um, And uh, we look after the health of a population of just over a million. And um, it's a privilege to do that. So I see our big, our major role as convening people together and making sure that we are addressing the health inequalities in the population.
0: Amazing. Thank you for the state. Um, Philip? Yeah, morning, everybody. I'm Phil Wood.
3: I'm Chief Executive of Leeds uh, Teaching Hospitals. I've come to this job from a medical background, having been in the uh, trust for 20 years as a consultant, uh, originally as an immunologist. Um, I've um, taken over at the beginning of the year in this role, and um, Leeds is a large tertiary care provider, one of the largest in the NHS, um, with quite a comprehensive range of, of services uh, for the population of Yorkshire and, and Humber. Uh, we're also uh, part of a lively uh, local uh, academic health partnership, uh, and we're at the beginning with the recent announcement of funding for our new hospitals program of an ambition around an innovation village in the middle of the city in collaboration with university and commercial partners and the local authority. Uh, So we're uh, tremendously excited about
0: that and very excited to be here. Thank you so much, Philip. And we do also have Rishi with us who has just joined on Perfect Q. Um, Hi, Rishi. Hi again, sorry. Perfect time, Rishi. We've just done some introductions and it was over to you. So if you could introduce yourself and the organisation you work for, that'd be fantastic.
4: Hi, I'm Rishi dasgupta and I work for the Health Innovation Network, serving London, South London perfect thank you so much Rishi and um, cool straight into sort of questions
0: that have been posed by the group then and um, one that I would like to start on with something yourself Felicity but also Rishi touched on when we've had sort of calls in the, in the past um, and it was all around how we can use digital to, nan- to narrow health inequalities so I'm going to come to you Felicity first potentially to expand on that and your thoughts and we can open it up to, to everyone and um, so happy to come over to you Felicity.
2: Thank you so um as I mentioned in my introduction, the heart of sort of Bevertshire Luton and Milton Keynes um, ICS is about making sure that everyone in our towns, villages and communities lives longer and healthier lives. And the reason that we chose that as our objective is we know that there's a 19 year difference between the, um, the point at which somebody enters ill health towards the end of their life in some parts of our place compared to others. So to us, that feels really important. and. We see that um, adopting uh, cutting-edge research and technology is really important to that. So uh, we have an ambition to become a research ICS, although we don't have a great academic uh, centre in our midst. Uh, We're working with our local universities and a network of universities, but absolutely really important to do research in our four very different populations, and I I could break it down further. So. Um, I think there's a range of things in which uh, that can help. So telemedicine and virtual appointments, uh, digital helps provide people with um, increased choice about how they can access services and that in itself can help reduce inequalities. Um, We are really... Committed because not all our population have access to either the internet because we have some rurality where that's really tricky, or to digital technology because of um, people not being able to afford it. We're we're actually working with our community to say it's digital first but not digital only, and being really um clear about that. With some of our um more deprived population, we're working on a pilot now to implement wearable technology, uh, which we're working in partnership with Apple to give people wearable technology to support them with type 2 diabetes, with exercise and uh, uh, moving around. And uh, we're also using uh, digital to narrow health inequalities in something we call Share for Care, which is our confidential electronic uh, record sharing system. Um, That brings together Uh, residence records from organisations across the ICS, so GP surgeries, local authorities, hospitals, community mental health, ambulance. We're also looking to work with the police and the fire service to extend that, because we know the populations that have really bad lives uh, are known to us all, and actually we need to intervene earlier uh, with them to support them to have um, uh, better opportunities. It also helps um, our staff to access relevant information and to keep them safer too. Uh, We are doing remote monitoring, increasing need to support people keeping well. So we've got uh, Wisan Blue Boxes in care homes, using technology to keep people well in their home rather than um, calling an ambulance. Um, And we're increasingly using um, information health portals and mobile health apps. So one of the health apps that uh, we've used um, with our um, most severely epileptic children is something called Patient Knows Best, where we've given um, the parents access to uh, the uh, application and they can contact their um, practitioners uh, in secondary and tertiary services to check on their children. They can video their children when they're fitting so that people can see. And these are kids who will have, you know, anywhere up to 20 or 30 fits in a day. Um, and particularly overnight, and that's enabled some of our families who have never been away to get away on holiday, even if it's for only forty-eight hours. It makes a huge difference, not just to the well-being of the child it can, uh, with epilepsy, but also their siblings. So those are just some examples of how we're using technology.
0: Thanks, fantastic, so, Rishi. I'm going to come to you because I know this is part of your questions that you would like to pose to group. I know you are quite passionate around um, sort of how we can tackle this.
4: Do you want to add anything? Um, So I agree with what Felicity was saying. I I think um, there's three big elements from my perspective on this one. One is that we've always known that the health inequalities, just as Felicity was saying, we've always known health inequalities uh, exist and have a huge impact Um, on on populations but actually the data to identify those populations we've only just started bringing it together and um, we've got a program in london to do that at each icb level across london and for research as well in the secure data environments for research Um, the second strand to it i think is for the first time digital gives us a way of consistently providing different services to different populations and that's a massive change for us and cultural changes in health service to be able to say rather than providing the best intervention to the same best intervention to everyone the interventions that are needed might be different by population and that's actually a huge management challenge to work through who gets what and we're beginning to do that in London both at a um, population level but also at a genomics level at GSTT, uh, we're seeing some programs, first six programs on genomics. Um, and then the third element that really excites me about digital is that we can now measure outcomes and many more outcomes that matter to patients. And that gives us that closed loop as to how we're doing improvement. Um, and I think that those three together mean that we're on the cusp of being able to provide much more genuinely personalized healthcare to uh, different populations across London. Good stuff. Thank you so much, Rishi. Um, ben, anything from a, a Manchester
1: perspective you'd like to add? Um Yes, yeah, so I think this is a really uh important conversation. And uh uh Rishi absolutely calls it out. Uh we we we've known inequalities exist in healthcare delivery, and we've always known that. But it does seem like there's a once-a-lifetime opportunity to really address that. But um there is something fundamental in this. Um uh, And that's that this is really, really very hard to do. And I think we sometimes forget that. And we also forget a little bit that actually um, operationally efficient care, which is doing things at the lowest possible unit cost, uh, which is one of the things we're always forced to do. Uh, in in the NHS, rightly so, is slightly inconsistent with really addressing inequalities. And you have some choices to make here about whether you really want to target inequalities or whether you really want to drive population health at scale, but don't for a moment think that they are the same thing. And uh, that's something I I don't think that comes out as loudly as it should do in, in the narrative. I won't repeat anything that's said before, but I will build on a couple of the points, particularly those made by Rishi, but I think this also builds on Felicity's point. We don't know which of these things is going to have the biggest effect size. We're doing lots of stuff, but there's an absolute responsibility for us to measure at the back end which of those things really makes a difference. And When you look at the big digital platforms exist in our world, and I'm going to talk about retail for a moment deliberately, They constantly know at the back end what's happening. They're constantly tweaking things and they're refining things at any particular point in time. So it's like one big ongoing kind of refining system to deliver care. And we need to get into that place. And we don't really do that very well. We run pilots and we stop, but we don't really get to the place of really running properly constructed proof of values where we're clear about the outputs, outcomes and impacts we want to get from that. And we need to get to that place, which requires a whole bunch of capabilities, some of which we have in our systems, but some of which we don't have in our systems, particularly some of that, I'm going to call it jobbing, next generation digital capabilities, which exist in spades in retail, tech, finance, tech, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the one thing that I think we do, and we've got some interesting experience in this in, in, in COVID is that uh, we try to roll out the COVID vaccination as fast as we possibly can. And I think when when I look at all the things that happened in my professional lifetime, I was a doctor for a long time before I got into this particular role. Um, the, the biggest thing that's hit us was the COVID crisis. And the most remarkable thing that happened was the rapid d- delivery of the COVID vaccine and the accelerated rollout. Uh, And it's quite easy to be kind of complacent about the COVID rollout because we hit the kind of high levels. But actually, if you look at COVID vaccination penetration rates by community, we actually generated inequalities by the COVID rollout. And that wasn't because we weren't good people trying hard. It's because we don't have the tools to be able to do that stuff well. So what we're increasingly thinking about, and we've got a fairly big grant to do this stuff, is how you can use the kind of principles of retail tech, particularly in terms of segmentation and micro-segmentation, as, as Rishi's described, and then drive uh, different systems of engagement, and I use the words kind of carefully, which can be either digital or physical or blended or mixed, which are culturally... uh, resonant with the population you're trying to serve and do that in a way, accepting it's the best idea you've got today, but it may not work. And I think learning from the other digital transformed industries into this particular space is really important. And that's a slight cultural clash between how that works and the way we've done public health in the past. And I think those are really interesting things.
0: Thank you so much, Ben. Uh, Philip, oh, sorry, I'm going to come to Philip first. I'll come to you first, if that's okay. Philip, do you want to add anything just from uh, a Yorkshire Leeds perspective? Um, yeah, I will certainly agree with the
3: the points uh, made, and I think that the the challenge around um, recognising inequalities is, to be fair, something that, as others have said, is a relatively recent recognition. I think the the health systems have tended to assume there are other parts of society and other parts of policy that have driven that, and I think the recognition that we're Probably contributing to some of those challenges is right. I think two things I would add uh, um, one is to echo the view that um, I think healthcare has been quite reductionist in its approach. That's generally how the training occurs, that's generally how the structures of systems yeah. occur. And there's something here about that changing culture about handling data in a kind of matrix way and thinking about a different scientific approach. Because I do think uh, the NHS is also guilty of setting off and doing. Um, uh, quasi-transformation without actually being clear what the kind of metrics are and what the improvement metrics are. So a lot of work can be done and then nobody's quite sure whether it's actually had um, the impact that it needs. Um, and the other bit, which I, I guess Felicity did touch on at the beginning, but I, I uh, certainly uh, in West Yorkshire we remain very worried about is the digital exclusion Um, issue because there's uh, quite rightly a lot of discussion about the accessibility of technology in people's pockets and uh, etc etc but I'm sure we're all dealing with sections of the community that are actually uh, some distance from being able to access that technology readily and easily. And of course, they're the very people whose health outcomes, early diagnosis, intervention, monitoring in chronic disease are very much the populations we need to reach. So I think uh, it's a live debate about how we do ensure that we're not just um, repeating a mantra that digital will solve the population's health problems.
0: Thank you, Phil. I'm going to come back straight back round to, to you
2: two. So I just wanted to build on what Ben and Phil have said, because I think that's absolutely right. Um, we can't just rely on digital. We need to understand, A, if people have it, B, how they use it and what's useful to them. But also, I think digital is useful if you talk to the people who you're trying to tackle through it. So we of all the sort of um, equivalent um, ICBs, had a very good vaccination rollout in COVID. Uh, not perfect, and certainly our deprived populations were the most uh, affected. But we actually spent a lot of time working out and ignoring what the national guidance was and working out what worked for local people. And talking to people is, is never, you know, digital is never a substitute for talking to people.
0: Thanks, Ben?
1: Yeah, so I'm going to say something um, uh, banal, right? Um, and and so we only need to do four things. Um, understand your population, define their needs, transform the way you do stuff, transform the way you pay for stuff. Those are the four things that we need to do. And quite frankly, at the moment, I don't think we're very good at any of those four things, I think that the point uh, around digital uh, and whether it's the answer to the maiden's prayer or whether it causes problems is is a really good one. But there's no doubt you can't properly understand your population without using digital approaches. And actually, that gives you a lens on that, which means you can fly by the instruments. In terms of defining their needs, I think Felicity is absolutely right. You get that by listening to people. And then you get that by really effective co-creation, where you need to have a whole bunch of different actors involved in that and a method, which is hard. And I don't think there's a sort of template we we can pick up for that. So we're trying to discover that stuff. Transforming your operating model is a, the big deal here. And this is where ICBs, I think, are really interesting, because this uh, will not end up, I think, the, the desired state will not be tweaks around the edges, but will be much more fundamental than that. And again, I don't think we know how to do that stuff. And at the moment, we're trying to do all of those three things with the existing business models, with the financial flows that exist. And again, ICBs have an opportunity to be really disruptive about that stuff if they're given the freedom to do so. But I think for them to be given the freedom to do so, they need to earn the trust to do so, which is actually this stuff is properly curated. And they're not kind of the best idea. They're properly configured with proof of values, which actually go into that stuff. And everybody's got the confidence to fail fast if it doesn't really work. So those are four things I think we need to do.
4: Easy, just four things. Thanks, Ben. Rishi? I love the tongue-in-cheek easy four things, Ben. I'm, I'm actually intrigued by where we start on this because a lot of things, as as we all know, a lot of things sort of follow a U-shaped curve, don't they, when you try and improve them and they get a bit worse for a little while before they get better. And it, if we're starting from all four, do you, do you think that we've got a chance to try and coordinate these and get better faster or do you think we're all going to go through a sort of dip first and then get better?
1: So for every difficult question, there's an easy answer, which is almost certainly wrong. And I think my fourth thing is probably wrong. But it is interesting, as I think we all know, trying to do these these things within the constraints of the existing financial flow structures. Um, And what I don't know, and it'd be really, really, really interesting to get uh, uh, Felicity and Philip's perspective on this is how we can start to break out some of those existing financial f- flows, particularly in in the midst of the, the kind of context that we, we find ourselves, to genuinely try and do different things, recognising that, you know, you can dream up a great answer in the centre, which will probably be wrong on this one too. Therefore, you need to have lots of clever people trying stuff in a really controlled environment to find out what does work and then rapidly lose the structures which are in place to then scale that stuff out. But like I say, I, I think it's something I know we need to do. I mean, you talk about, for example, value-based healthcare. You know that stuff we talk about. We don't really do it. You know because the financial flows are what they've been pretty much for a long time. Okay, they go through slightly different structures, but it's whether we've got the kind of
3: confidence and the freedom to do that stuff.
0: What's your And you got anything
3: you'd like to add? Um, yeah, I mean, I very much agree with the point Ben makes. I mean, from a from a sort of acute provider perspective, I mean, it's interesting that the Um, The short-term focus that we're required to work under, actually, is in danger of unpicking some of the good work that was done before the pandemic, thinking around. um, So, for example, in Leeds, we had moved away from a uh, payment by results mechanism to what was termed an aligned incentive contract. So, as a place, uh, the city of Leeds had an agreed pot of money, and we were starting to get into a dialogue, very constructive dialogue, between partners in health and care and the third sector where the best use therefore of that pot of money was going to be that then led us into segmentation of population as you mentioned earlier ben so you know you can divide your population up into that where i agree i think you need the data is then within that population to start overlaying some of the demographics some of the um some of the kind of distribution of income access to clean air access to public transport because the bit for us as a hospital provider is that comment that I think it may have been Michael Marmot made many many years ago around bringing someone in from adverse social circumstances effectively patching them up and sending them back and all the digital technology in the world is not actually going to make any difference to that circumstance. So I think there is something, the financial flow question for me comes back to how do we give systems permission to actually have a single pot of money, which then local leaders can have a conversation about and what's the best use of that money in their particular locality. And that will actually come quite down to localism. So um, interested in Felicity's views, but that's not for me even an ICB uh, level discussion that's very much a place-based discussion and probably around the sort of community-based discussion because the needs of community A in a deprived part of a city are going to be hugely different to the needs of community B in a more affluent
0: semi-rural part. Thanks Phil. Rishi did you have something to add or I see you okay okay but I think it's um that, that sort of topic is um spout quite a lot of conversation and I'm keen to sort of go through a few of the, the points that we made at the start of this so I'm going to move on um, but I think it's all um, interesting talking points and different views and one of the topics that kept coming up when I spoke to you all was around culture Uh, and Ben you spoke about culture and we previously spoke before this podcast today Um, and you spoke about organisational culture and what does culture mean for a CEO in a sort of health organisation do you want to touch on what you meant by that and we can open it to the floor
1: yeah um, thanks so I think this is uh, potentially an interesting thing for us to kind of get our teeth into a little bit so I was a cardiac surgeon for 25 years, uh, and now I run an innovation organization. And um, when I think about culture, I think about culture fit for business objective. Okay, so the culture in Manchester City Football Club will be different from the culture in uh, Manchester Royal Infirmary, for example, because they're doing different kind of things. There's some similar principles, but the way you uh, those things play through are, are, are different. And I think when it comes to innovation, and I think we all accept that innovation at scale is required to deliver better outcomes to local people with, with constrained costs. You've got a clash of culture, I think, between the historical NHS delivery model, which is very much dominated by uh, risk and risk avoidance. It's very much dominated about uh, accountability uh, to the center, um, and so on and so forth. And when you've got innovation organizations, what you're trying to do is to do different stuff, accepting that if you're not failing in 20% of what you do, you're probably not doing things which are potentially innovative and and, and transformational enough. So when we think about our innovation operating model, we think about people having the right kind of people, culture, culture is king. We think about processes and the way we do this stuff, which comes back to some of the points I was making around uh, proof of value rather than pilots. And you're absolutely clear that you've got a process which will leave you to demonstrating that value. And if not, you you kind of try again or you do something else. Tools, the tools which we underpin this stuff to, which are sort of state-of-the-art cloud-based tools for project management and then technology recognition recognizing almost everything you can do, you can do better, quicker uh, with with, with digital approaches. So people, process, culture, tools, and tech. And then what we're trying to do off the back of that is then work out what culture we need in an innovation organization. And we've got a kind of culture wheel that we use, which is culture fit for business objectives. And we're clear what our business objectives are. We're an innovation organization, not a healthcare delivery organization. It's about leadership effectiveness. So when we say, as leaders, we want something to be done, does it actually get done? Do we measure that? And if it doesn't, do we kind of reflect on that? It's about relationships, and importantly, that that's relationships inside the organisation, up and down within the organisation. But critically, it's about the relationships. Uh, you know, if I was working in in you know Leeds or Bedfordshire, I would expect to have the right relationship with uh, with you guys because that's what actually kind of gets stuff done. It's then about uh, ownership, personal ownership, and accountability. It's around uh, momentum. It's around evolutionary purpose, and all of those things, and baking those into stuff which is right fit for business business purpose. But it there is no doubt that the culture within an innovation organisation is that different from the culture within most NHS organisations. And I suspect it's probably fair to say that the culture in ICB structures is different from the, uh, the culture within NHS uh, provider organisations to an extent. And I think as leaders, if we really want to get our job is delivery of strategy, effectively, as chief executives. To get that right, we need to think super, super hard about culture. And we also need to think super hard about the interface between an innovation culture uh, and a delivery culture and how we make sure that all works really well to everybody's
0: benefit. I think you just unmute there, Alex. It was always going to happen once this morning, wasn't it? Uh, I was just saying, does anyone want to add anything from their organisation,
3: Phil? Uh, possibly yeah, I, I mean, I, 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 mean I, I, would, I would agree with that. We're an organisation that's done a lot of work around our um, culture and values um, and um, actually ha- had a set of values which were effectively crowdsourced by our staff to uh, kind of kickstart our kind of cultural structure. I, I think that... Um, I think. One of the things that's here is that is that critical overlap between delivery and what we term innovation but I have some uh, reservations that we we um ironically talk about innovation as something new because actually teams clinical teams teams in particular, uh, but also lots of administration estates and facilities have done small scale innovation for years, uh, brought new ideas in. The issue is how you do that at scale, because I think most teams are used to working in groups of, you know, 10, 15, 20, and may well drive a lot of innovation in surgical techniques or therapies or whatever it might be. The challenge is how you then, as Ben articulates, create a culture where everybody feels they contribute to that continuous improvement and innovation um, effort. Now, we, we've done that through a partnership with Virginia Mason, which we've had for nearly 10 years now, um, to have a uh, what we've now got, the leads Improvement Method, which is something that we embed... Across all of our staff. And so so we're giving them the tools to be able to do that improvement. And uh, I I think that's an important factor because not all innovation is high tech, expensive, shiny technology. Innovation actually can be quite small scale, quite low key, but actually quite transformative in terms of service delivery and therefore health outcomes. Thank you. So let's
0: see from a sort of ICS perspective, you've
2: got anything to add? Uh Yes um I think for ICSs it's all about culture because we're a group of um, in my ICS 20 organizations working in partnership and then another 5,000 voluntary sector organizations who we want to work with and actually every single one of those has different cultures so the way that we sort of work through some of that is trying to it it, it is agreeing shared objectives and our priority areas were set by talking to all the partners across the system and then coming up with with our five priority areas and they are broad because it you know we're trying to fit in a broad church but i think one of the things that the um that we've learned over the sort of first year of the icb and over the sort of couple of years that or uh, well, two and a half years I've been working in the ics is actually, it's really important that you've got a shared objective to start off with. And then actually, you can blend the cultures together, you can learn from other people's cultures, and you can use the different cultures of different organisations to try and achieve those shared objectives. But it's really important to understand what your bit of the jigsaw is. So our bit, but on occasions, it's convening. It's bringing the right partners together. On occasions, it's actually setting strategy. It depends what it is. But you really need to understand your part in in that delivering of the shared objectives. And actually, I think what's really interesting at the moment is is in common with all ICBs, the Secretary of State has said 30% management cost reductions. I've got a situation where my um, integrated care team the the staff in my organization have bought into the culture of change building from place Do, they kind of don't want to go so i've got a situation where i could put out a vr and most of my staff would want to stay because they're really excited about that doing things at place working with individuals neighborhoods and then building so i think one of the cultures that we're going to have to develop across the nhs which i think is there in parts of it, but not in all of it? Is how do we build that team of teams piece, and how do we make sure that innovation and innovative ideas flow up and down, and that we develop a culture where we listen to everyone? Because I think that's going to be absolutely crucial.
0: Thank you for listening. And Ben, back around to
1: you, so uh, no, R- Rishi. Um, Rishi will have a view on this, so I'll sort of defer to Rishi if you want to come in, Rishi. Oh,
4: Rishi. Thanks, Ben. I am. Um... I, I'm intrigued by the way we've talked about this as different, to, slightly differently to the way that Ben introduced the last topic around um, incentives and financial flows, because I think that one of the bits where we potentially disconnect the way that culture works in our organisations is by not rewarding those that do really well. So if we, ben, Ben's example from earlier of other industries, if we went to retail, um, a set of organisations which are healthy in one area, tend to also be doing well financially. And um and and we don't necessarily connect those things. So I'm I I reflect back to sort of my acute days. Clinical excellence awards, are they really rewarding those people who are providing really great outcomes and experience for patients? Have are we measuring those things? And digital gives us a real way to actually measure those things and then reward people who are doing the things that we we believe are, are really useful. And also kind of Creating fun and meaning in our workplace and, and, and what we're doing is something that is we we've never really measured it as well as I think we could do in, in industry. And, and other industries are surveying their staff, engaging with their staff on a regular basis to make that happen. So when we talk about innovation, I'm also thinking what innovations in digital could we apply to our million strong workforce to actually think how are we really engaging them well and rewarding those people who are making it fun to come to work on a daily basis. Which just sounds like Felicity, you've got an organisation where you've got there. So, it's all good. Thank you. Thanks, ben, did you want to add to that? Thanks, Rishi. So yeah, going to you first, Ben.
1: Yeah. So I'm just going to probe this one a, a, a little bit deeper. Uh, so, um I, I think our, our job as as leaders within our organisations is to create the right culture within our organisations. And I think, but I'm not certain that the culture that I should be creating in my organization is different from the culture that uh, uh, Phil should be creating in his organization. I think they're intrinsically different things. And I think Phil spoke about improvement and I know uh, quite all about leads for various different reasons. And I think they do a fantastic job and the improvement culture is absolutely right. And improvement is everybody's job, but I don't think innovation is everybody's job. And I think the kind of approaches to innovation, some of the stuff that we're trying to put in place in our our, our organisation on innovation, I would not expect people to be doing. Some of the subject matter expertise is different. The tools that we use are different. Um, The people that we want are different. And my approach to leadership is different, particularly, I think, with respect to kind of... um, the level of empowerment within lanes of delegated responsibility is is, is different in there, uh, and I think when we all get that right, absolutely right, and we're pretty really sophisticated about how those cogs fit together. In in my case, it's a pretty small cog of an innovation organisation which, like a Swiss watch, works seamlessly with the cogs of the other bits of the jigsaw, all of which are perfectly formed. And we recognise that those cultures are different, but actually those things come together. And I think Felicity used the word blended. I wouldn't use the word blended. Blended to me means like you put all the different coloured paints in a pot and mix it up and come with one colour. I would stick with a switch watch analogy, where all those things are really precise. Precisely defined and interf- interfaces are really well honed. That's when we'll get to a great place on this stuff.
0: Thank you, Ben. Bill, did you have anything to add or, or, or nothing on that? Then, yeah, I mean, like your hand I, went up and then it went down. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, so so I, I agree
3: uh, with with what Ben says. And I, I'm, I'm, I was hesitant as to whether I wonder it's fundamentally different or whether there's more of a kind of Venn diagram here. Just because I think fundamentally both our people businesses. And actually, they're driven by the culture of uh, both compassion and kind of fairness and equity within an organisation, but also a culture of inquiry and ambition to improve. So I suppose what I was trying to articulate, which I think would overlap with an innovation organisation, will be that sense of what can we do to actually make um make this better and i think my second point which i think is also important to to, cr- to create that kind of um overlap or at least clear um connectivity is is that um is that kind of we know that the push model of innovation has been pretty unsuccessful in the nhs with kind of long lead times to actually persuade people for to use technologies actually uh, almost out of date by the time they've jumped through all the hoops. And we know that the pull model of innovation is actually much more successful. So there is something around in uh, my type of organization creating a culture that then means we do want to interact with Ben's type of organisation, because actually what we want to do is to be getting our clinicians to be going to Ben's teams and saying, you know what, if we could do X, Y and Z, this would really transform. And then, of course, you get that innovation ecosystem, which uh, obviously, you know, Manchester have, we're we're building as well, very much the model of, of our clinicians being... Uh, part of that engine room, uh, if not the delivery arm of innovation. Great.
1: Can I just come ben. back in very quickly on this? Yes. Then, yeah. So um, I, 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 the only thing I wanted to do today <laughs> was to have this particular conversation, because I think it's a conversation that we don't have enough. I think we tend to have it a lot within our separate organizations but i don't think we have it enough across our organizations and i guess felicity you know uh, uh, you'll probably say that one of the roles of the icb is to drive that kind of conversation but we tend to try to try to try to drive that conversation um slightly more kind of uh, I'm going to say structurally rather than culturally and I think the more we get that right culturally the, the 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 chances of actually landing innovation at pace and scale will be much stronger so I'm glad we've had the conversation and I think we should work out ways of kind of building
4: on that. Thank you so much Ben. ben go to so add, I was going to add uh, on to this the size of the scale of the organisations we're talking about so Ben I think when we started talking about it, talked about the role of senior leadership in this and us as individuals in our own organizations. But again, quite a lot of organizational design thinking works around sort of organization units of 100 to 200 people. And the individual leaders of each of those business units have to be able to create their own culture within that and try and make that fit within the organization culture. And and that brings up a question of where we think we want to slot innovation and improvement within them. Because the c- culture of continuous improvement suggests you embed it everywhere, and that it has to be in every organizational unit. But a lot of other industries, people say, well, actually, I'm going to be delivering for the next five years, and I'm going to periodically transform, in which case you put it into a sense of excellence for transformation, and you pull those in. And Philip had started to talk about sort of the leads methodology. I know, I know Felicity's got, uh, got a view on it as well. So, I wonder if we we sort of tackle the way we approach that as well. Ah, can you raise your hand.
2: I was just wondering um, what the what the change might be brought about by NHS Impact because I think this is quite an interesting idea that has been sort of damned with faint praise. But the idea being that we start to look at performance through a uh, an improvement lens all the time, and I think that's a huge cultural shift for the NHs because there's a sort of fail fast piece to that there's a sort of risk um, support uh, mechanism that isn 't in the nhs and i I wonder how are um, how the culture of the overarching NHS and NHS England will be able to adapt to actually saying, Well, you didn't hit this target, but what were the steps that you took to do it? And what else can we help you to do to improve to hit that? Or, you know, to say, Actually, your outcomes for X, uh, you know, what improvement approach are you taking to that instead of actually just, you know, hitting people harder or asking people to run faster? And I think we've got a, a culture in the NHS where there is no time. To care for our staff um, and a, an exhausted staff regime, and I think improvement might be the golden thread that helps us out of that. But it requires huge culture change to be able to get to that point. Ben,
0: and well, this is something you're
1: passionate about. <laughs> I, I am passionate about this. If if I was to go on mastermind, uh, my specialist subject would be um, cardiac surgery governance failures between 2000 and 2016. That would be my specialist subject, uh, and I'd probably end up getting taken to court multiple times for the answer that I would give to the questions that I was asked. But my point in all of this, having gotten to close to all of those things, is that when you go into the units who actually ended up getting themselves in a pickle, you could almost feel the problem. It was it was about it was about culture not fit for business objectives. It was about. Personal relationships. It was about lack of leadership. It was about lack of uh, chief officer accountability. It was about lack of board accountability. All those kind of things. And by the time that I kind of left that world, uh, having worked really hard to measure it uh, in terms of numbers, uh, I kind of felt that we were barking up the wrong tree. And actually, measuring it in terms of just how does it feel? You know, what what is the culture? Was kind of more important. Uh, uh, and. Uh, I wondered whether we could get better at measuring culture. I know what they do in terms of measuring culture, in terms of CQC stuff. It doesn't really do the job for me. And I think the evidence is that despite the things they do, you do get these pockets of things come up, which are our problems. I mean, uh, Bill, you'll be much closer to this than I I am. But I do think there's something here about getting optimal systems by thinking more about the culture, defining the optimal culture, and measuring to that optimal culture, particularly how that all fits together in interfaces, which actually might be the solution to some of the things that we've got at the moment.
0: Okay, thank you so much, Ben. Okay, cool. We're just conscious of time, we've got about 15 minutes left on on the clock, so we're going to move on to potentially the last sort of discussion point of the session. Um, so one of the... One of the things that kept coming up when I spoke to each and every one of you was around um, what's driving the cost at the NHS at the moment. It's something you, Felicity, um, spoke about with myself. Um, and it spoke about sort of how we could integrate the data to give a rich picture and then target from there. So specific targeting, actually understanding who are the patients at the moment and, and where they come from. So Felicity, do you want to start on that? And then we can open it up to, to everyone else. Um, yes. I mean, w- we know
2: that uh, rising costs are being driven by growing and ageing populations. And we know we've got, um, certainly in my patch, which is growing the fastest in the country, we've also got non-demographic pressures, you know, people moving in. But we are really reluctant as an NHS to get upstream of any of this and to use the data to identify um, how we can tackle the challenge of that ageing um more unwell population and look at how we get into uh, protection, prevention. Um, and I I think the NHS is actually quite good at secondary prevention, but we're very poor at primary prevention. Um, and we really need to get into that agenda. And I think it's very hard because you also need to treat a lot of people on your waiting list and get a lot of things done. But actually, if we don't get upstream, we're not going to be a sustainable NHS. So I think that working with local authorities and the voluntary sector, we should be using data from a range of sources to identify people who are at risk of something. And it's not just older people, it's everyone who's vulnerable. And one of my um, local authorities in central Bedfordshire is really proud of the fact that they have um, managed to hold their spending on um, older people's social care for quite some well for 10 years and actually meet a a rising uh, need in their population because they planned ahead they started to build supported housing they started to build different things but actually if we took that sort of prevention approach and how can we keep our people safe longer right upstream we'd be starting with school readiness. We'd be starting with a range of things, but we're not picking out. So who are the families who are at risk of not having kids who are ready to go to school? You know, the health of a mother uh, of a girl at 14 is going to determine the health of their child. So how are we working with schools and so on? We've really got to use data to start to target the people that are most at risk of sort of uh, ending up in failing health way, way upstream of where we do now, we tend to sort of start when somebody's showing some signs of vulnerability, by which time it, it's too late.
0: Thank you, Thurston. Is is anyone on Philip, over to yourself. Yeah, so so um
3: Felicity, I'd absolutely agree with that. Again, I guess um, my reflection is always we've got we've kind of got two groups here. So um, I was interested with the, the notion that the NHS is good at secondary prevention, because I'm not sure I would actually entirely agree with that. I think it very much spreads across the health inequalities landscape. So um, for example, in Leeds, we have the information around where the 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 sort of the the most poorly controlled diabetics across the city are, but we don't actually proactively do anything with that information in terms of how we handle uh, waiting lists or think about the kind of readiness for surgery or all of those downstream interventions. so I think one of the opportunities and the theme around this um, uh, podcast around how we can use technology for better chronic disease monitoring I think is an absolutely critical Uh, factor here. We need to be getting people upstream in their disease illness, if that makes sense. So we know people have got some of those diseases of lifestyle so-called, but actually we could be managing them to live much more healthy, productive Economically active lives. If we could synthesize some of the data with the medical information we've got, um, I, I, and I coming to the primary prevention, I think you're absolutely right. I was uh, told the other week that we've got about 26% of the Leeds population living in the lowest 20% uh, de- uh, um, uh, deprivation, but we've all we've got 50% of uh, primary school children being born into that uh, group. So actually, we are storing we are already storing up all of those challenges around poor health related to things like poor dental health, poor nutrition, all poor learning, poor school attendance. They're already the challenges that will come back to challenge a health system in 20 to 30 years time, unless we seriously think about what getting upstream actually means. Not, Not so much, you know, well, not as much Asking that person in their forties to lose weight, stop smoking, and exercise more, but actually also think about those children under five because they're they they're, they're going to give us our uh, health challenges and actually our health workforce of the future. Because of course that's the other issue which we perhaps won't get time to get onto today.
0: Thank you, Philip. Uh, ben, over
3: to yourself.
1: Yeah. So, uh, is right, isn't she? And it is the kind of the big the big conversation. Um, and it is just unbelievably super hard. So I've been in Greater Manchester now for six and a half years. I didn't join uh, at the time when the devolution deal was being negotiated, but I'm obviously you know fairly well informed about it. And those kind of conversations have been swirling around ever since. And at the bottom line here, there is a tension, and I just call out that tension. Um, there is a, a kind of, and I'm going to say, on the one hand, uh, you have uh, some of the big public health initiatives that have that have happened in Greater Manchester, and um, uh, I call out things like smoking cessation, things like childhood dentition, these type of stuff, uh, which actually uh, are things which which uh, almost certainly make a difference, but they make a difference with a relatively long time base. And therefore, you've got to be pretty confident about A, what you're investing in them of the total pot, and B, that you actually get what you want to get by actually doing them. And some of those things can be a little bit kind of uncertain, depending on what 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 you choose. And then the other hand, you've then got people like uh, Phil, who actually gets judged by the centre for their ability to deliver to all the various different targets that they've got, and you've only got a fixed pot of money. So you have to make choices a- a- around those things. And everybody's got to be comfortable with those choices, both kind of locally and sort of nationally in terms of the way that works. And this is this is, this is is the conversation and the tension. But the other thing I'm just going to add to some layer on top of that is that we, we look at everything that we do through green book logic model type approaches, you know, so what is the context? What are the activities you're going to undertake? What are the inputs to those activities, are right, the money? What are the outputs? So those are things you can measure straight away. What are the outcomes? Uh, yeah. What are the what are the impacts from those outcomes? And then how does that play back into the context? So that sort of circular loop of things. And actually, a lot of the conversations that we've had today uh, uh, require us to measure all the way through that cycle in an overt kind of way. So we're clear that the inputs, i.e. the money, leads to the impacts, which affects the context in a reasonable time base. And we're clear what sort of time base that happens is required to get to those impacts. And that needs to be rigorous, that methodology. And it's usually, in my experience, not as rigorous as it needs to be. But if you can get to that place, and then as an ICB, you can say, OK, we want a balanced portfolio here. We've got X And actually, this is the way we want to spend all our money on these different projects, understanding that these things have got a different certainty, a different time base. Everybody's kind of bought into that kind of stuff. Then I think you get to that place. But I think you have to do that because spending more in the left hand means you've got less in the right hand, which has consequences for the way in which you're judged.
0: Yeah. Let's see, just talking to yourself, I'm going to come to Rishi, just
4: to see if you've got anything to add from, from your perspective, Rishi. I think Ben has hit the nail on the head there. The the challenge around this is we all recognize that if we were to divide up the money by where there is need, we might come to one answer. But actually, in policy terms, dividing up um, financial resources to support healthcare based on impact and measurable impact over a period of time, you get to a different answer. And squaring that circle is quite difficult from policy terms and, and you know, the, the positive in all of this for me is that we have a universal healthcare system. We have a way of delivering care consistently across the country, and there are very few countries that are in that position. So we're we're set up to win. Uh, you know, if we can if we can make all of that work. Thanks, Rishi. let's see back to
2: yourself. Uh, I just wanted to, I suppose, make two points. One one is um, we need health to be written into every department's requirements for their outcomes, because we don't join up and see that actually only 20% of people's health is determined by what the NHS does. 80% is outside of our control. So we need that that sort of warp and wet. but i suppose the other thing is is how can we maximize digital for those people who will uptake it we've got a scheme running in in our part of the world uh healthy living program where everyone with type 2 diabetes since january has been sent a text and been asked to sort of register with their healthy living uh website and to get sort of information to support them with their conditions and yeah we've we've sort of sent 32,000 texts, but we've got 10% of that population who are actually engaging with that. Well, that's 10% of the population that perhaps we are getting to, that we're not getting to otherwise. So we need to use digital to sort of expand our reach as well. And I think we shouldn't forget that um, because not everyone will partake in it, but for those that will, it can be a real um, tool for benefit for us.
0: Thank you so much, Justin. Thank you. Is anyone else got anything to add on that? Because I'm conscious of time. That might be our, our sort of concluding points today. Has anyone else got anything they'd like to, to add on that? Yeah, we could uh, have this conversation for at least another two hours on, on various points. And Phil, you mentioned the things around workforce and things like that and I'm not even able to touch on that then topic. So it might be another chance to have a have another session around that because I think it's quite topical right now and it's um going to be sort of you know the top of the next few years but and um, other than that i'd like to say thank you to all of you for being our guests this morning and um, i hope you guys found some value from sharing ideas and collaborating with each other Um and i hope you enjoy the rest of your day i'm just gonna press stop recording and then